Hello and welcome to Film Festival Reviews, a place where filmmakers and film lovers stop by and listen in on what's happening in and around the independent film and film festival circuit worldwide. This is Christina Kotlar, and I had the pleasure of meeting up with Jeffrey Smith, director of The English Surgeon, and the English surgeon himself, Henry Marsh, at the second annual Cinema Eye Honors for Nonfiction Filmmaking. IndiePix Films, sponsoring the event, recognizes outstanding achievement in nonfiction films of 2008. Now, they put out this great program guide, and I'm looking at it honoring work in production, achievement in direction. They have outstanding achievement in a feature debut, international feature, achievement in editing, music composition, cinematography, graphic design, and animation. It was like one big convention of documentary filmmakers. I had seen a lot of the films that were nominated at the different film festivals. I saw Order of Myths, Man on Wire, and The Betrayal. And Anvil, the story of Anvil, yes, I did see that at the midnight screening at Sundance. Uh, War Child at Tribeca in a Dream at Woodstock. Waltz with Bashir at Cannes. Uh, so many others as they started to make their way into theaters. And I had the opportunity to program The English Surgeon for a special screening at the Kino Q Ukrainian Film Festival in between it winning awards at Hot Docs in Toronto and Silver Docs in Silver Spring, Maryland. So The English Surgeon is an intimate portrait, really gets into this, of a brain surgeon uh, sharing his knowledge and surgical skills with a colleague in Ukraine who struggles with a broken down healthcare system. When Dr. Kurilets refers to his favorite painting, the Cossacks, heroes in Ukrainian history, celebrating after a battle, he associates brain surgeons as the same as the Cossacks. Henry grumbles that his friend is giving him more complex operations every time he comes to Ukraine, yet he dons his mask, he scrubs in, and he mutters bloody Cossacks before entering the operating room. So you have this balance of fearful patience, you know, the drama there, um, the tenseness of it all, and it has to drop some of these outrageous kind of Monty Python lines, you know, just to cut the tension sometimes, you know, I guess surgeons have to do that. And just as surgeons go into battle when they enter operating rooms, getting documentaries distributed is a battle starting out in film festivals where you establish a platform and then you have to just get out there and continue pushing to get this into the theaters and into the public you know, and see letting the audience go out and find this and getting the job done from a perspective of a documentary filmmaker jeffrey smith is making a film following a brain surgeon's perspective on taking risks and being the one that does the job underscoring the constant struggle to get the balance right between doctor patient relationship at the Cinema Eye Honors, D.A. Pennybaker remarked on how dynamic and vibrant documentary film world has become today, and the English surgeon certainly measures up with this complex, symbiotic relationship between filmmaker and subject, doctor and patient. It just really makes for an extraordinary film. Enjoy the show. 
Are you going to do just Henry or you want both of us I to talk? I would like both of you. Yeah, we do quite a good sort of and wide yeah. double act, don't we? You're the ventriloquist and I'm the dummy. <laughs> I'm essentially Jeffrey's creation. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you for taking the time and everything. But let's just kind of start up a little bit from the beginning. I'll start with, uh, with you, Jeffrey, because uh, you'd found Dr. Marsh here, Dr. Henry Marsh, and you've done documentaries before, so you've, hmm. you've had the experience back there. So how did you get started with this film? I, I think the, the practical answer is I was asked to do a documentary by the BBC um, about surgeons, and I was late coming on, and I said to the boss, who's the most interesting man? Because he'd met something like 50 surgeons around the country. So I didn't want to you know, go through anything unnecessary. I just said, who's the most interesting guy? And he said, oh, Henry Marsh, without a doubt, you know, he's the one. So... I rang Henry up, and I think it was literally the next day or the day afterwards, uh, sitting down there, and um, we very quickly bonded, and we very quickly, over some vodka or something, I'm sure it was the same. Probably, yes. We we realised we had this love-hate relationship with Ukraine, and for people from the UK to even know where it is, let alone having in both of our cases been out there for over a decade, was quite something. And it was a sense of fate and it was a sort of magnetic attraction that we both had to fulfill this destiny because a henry's time and and his work out there he knows how special it's been and i've always wanted to make a film about ukraine so uh, i was going to ask to explain that love hate uh, relationship well it's a, it's for well, both of us i, would, I wouldn't use the word change. hate i'd say love frustration i mean it's there's an immediacy and directness and rawness to life in Ukraine, which, as an affluent, comfortable Westerner, one finds, in a sense, impressive. At least impressive to the extent that people I work with out there, they have to overcome problems like which we don't in our comfortable lives. There's a great quote by the Hungarian poet Faludi, who died last year in his 90s. He was the most famous 20th century Hungarian poet, he ended up in a Stalin prison camp in the early 50s. And he said, Soviet communism was like metal, like acid. Soviet communism like acid poured over metal. People made of base metal were destroyed by it, which was a majority. But people made of gold shone all the brighter. And, and I've met people out in Ukraine, like Igor and his father, who are incredibly impressive people. They have, they've had enormous problems to overcome and the struggle Igor's had over the last over the 18 years I've been working with him to set up his own not-for-profit independent high-quality neurosurgical clinic is quite extraordinary yeah. you know <laughs> the authorities on the whole have not been helping him and he's only got to where he has done really because of the support of his patients one or two influential people and the press and, and the press yeah. and the fact the there was a an almost free media in the Kuchma period, and there's a completely free media now. His many patients who realised actually he was, they were getting very good treatment to his hand um, stood up for him, and that's how he survived. But in the Soviet time, of course, he would never have. It was a sort of medical that, dissident, really. But that struggle, which Henry put so well in the film by saying, you know, it's a very English response. The struggle, and it, it, there's nothing better for a, a good English soul than to help the underdog, and that's exactly what you responded to in part. It was a friendship, of course, but there was also this great sense of injustice that this was a man trying to do good things over there, Igor, and he was being stifled. And Henry took it upon himself to change that. And that's what I mean about the the hate, because we love these people so much that the struggle 
in my case, just the sheer horror of some of the things people have to put up with makes you hate the system and the authorities. Yeah, no, that's true. And, and I, that's, I, that's, certainly, that's the, I mean, I, I, at one point I was having endless meetings with Apologique here, over in Kiev. And I mean, it is, it is awful how unpleasant yeah. people are to each other in public life, certainly in the Soviet time, and since then as well. I mean, it's yeah. completely ruthless. Once, on a personal level, people are incredibly kind and friendly, but on an official level, they're, level, they're just cutting each other's throats all the time. And it's a very, very, very hierarchical society. You have to have your, your patron, your, the roof over your head to survive. It's, it's what in sociological language is called a clientelist society. You have to have, you know, you have yeah. bosses and clients. Uh, and that's the way it still works. And you, still, you have this guy, what's the Artemisov in eastern Ukraine, this oligarch, who's yeah. enormously influential. And Yanukovych is, is largely yeah. a front man yeah. for, these, for these big financial interests. Very complicated. So when you first started talking about this, how long did it take before you went with Henry to... Well, we had, the, we had the other film to make first. <laughs> Which was very successful. You could, I mean, it, it, got, it got some of the top prizes. For oh, that was for the BBC. Yeah. Yes, it was called your, your Life in Their Hands. And then it was about two years after that... You had to get the money and everything. You came well, out, also because you came I had out series about, to do. For you the came BBC. out with me about three times, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, and we went out, and it was yeah. literally arriving uh, and, and going into that that small consulting room, which you see in the film. And within half an hour of being there, I absolutely knew I had the film I wanted to make because it it was such um, an insight into not only the world of the struggle to do good things, which medicine's a great metaphor for. It's not really a medical film. It's a, it's a film. It's a moral fable. And we could also address that through Henry's great willingness and desire to, to show us that and to be vulnerable, to actually allow us as an audience into his doubts and dilemmas. But the other thing you could do was to get into the heart of Ukraine because those people in that corridor, you know, are suffering and they are victims of a system that doesn't work. So you had a way into a country, but through an, an English character, which would work, of course, for an English audience. It was a great marriage, and it proved to be. I heard about the film from Hot Docs, you know, when you won the award, and that's when I wanted it really for the program for the Kino Q Ukrainian Film Festival that I was programming, that was in May. I was floored by it as well, because I think coming from that background, I know what it's like when people look up to authority, oh, and yeah. not knowing, you have to put your life in someone's hands, but oh. people aren't used to that. They're putting, the, they're used to putting their life in God's hands, yeah. and a, and here to put your your life in a doctor's hands. Yeah. And again, not having all of the medical treatments that are available here, people just don't realize what goes on out Absolutely. there. Absolutely, and that's why that scene with the priest in the church is cut. Henry's seen in, in, the, uh, in the English operating theatre is cut into the middle of that scene in the church because, in a way, you know, he's become, in Marion's mind, he has become the same thing. I mean, Marion is putting his faith at an everyday level in God, but here he's transferring some of it to Henry. He has to have faith in Henry. He is. He's literally putting his life into Henry's hands, which is a very sacred thing, you know. It's also exchange for Henry's desire to even try and save Marion's life. You know, there's a beautiful, sacred, special doctor-patient relationship there. And that's much more about the heart of the film, I think. It's also, of course, potentially terribly corrupting. I mean, the doctor-patient relationship is a very real thing. 
And if doctors don't have a sense of personal responsibility and personal contact with their patient, it leads to bad medicine. But at the same time, what I think many doctors don't realise until they become patients themselves is how frightened we are as patients of doctors. And this is very corrupting. I mean, one, I work in a very deadly field of medicine, so an awful lot of my patients are going to die. And I spend a lot, every week I'll be breaking bad news to people. And you never get any feedback. You never know, if you think about it, nobody's going to ring me up and say, well, Mr Marsh, you, thank you for breaking the bad news to so nicely, or Mr Marsh, you really did that very badly. And although in theory you can sort of, I teach, a lot of my time is spent teaching junior doctors, but these things are difficult to teach, and you have to learn somehow to talk to people without really getting very much information back as to how well or how badly you're doing it. It does make it very difficult. And there's one reason why many doctors do it rather badly, I think, because it's it's a difficult thing to teach and you get very little... When you make surgical mistakes, well, then you can't... You know that. You can't get away from that. But in terms of communication, that's that's very tough. I think, on the whole, I think most doctors like wine get better with age. Because as you get older and your end bits start dropping off, I personally had bilateral retinal detachments and various other things. You know, you, you begin to realise you're made of the same flesh and blood as your patients and you become more... Sympathetic. At the same time, as you become a more senior doctor, you're you're more confident. You you can you you don't need the barrier when you're junior and you're having to feel your way. You're much more anxious about things going wrong. You're less experienced, and in a sense, you need you need more defence to protect yourself. But as you become older and more experienced, you you know if things go badly, inevitably quite a few of my operations do. I get very upset, but it's a pure now. It's a in a relatively altruistic up distress because I don't feel like uh, maybe you'll send me a patient again or it'd be bad for my reputation. Now people say, even though Henry Marsh operated, the, the patient did badly. Whereas 20 years ago, I thought, God, they'll say that stupid young new surgeon doesn't know what he's doing. You know, and there was an element of vanity. It was not a bad thing. You know, if you didn't care about your reputation, you wouldn't, you wouldn't work as well as you did. But I think on the whole, most, most doctors get a bit better. But it's a huge problem in medicine. This, this business is striking a balance between, between compassion and detachment. You don't want your surgeon to be terribly touchy-feely and over-involved because actually he won't necessarily do things as well as he should. I've made mistakes and I've been too nice. I've been, you know, trying to deny that something was going wrong because I didn't want to upset the patient. And, and you have this fundamental tension in all medicine, which is particularly important if you do dangerous medicine as I do. And on one hand, you should only treat people as you'd wish to be treated yourself, and that's the fundamental moral law for all of us. But at the same time, as a doctor, it is incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to operate on somebody you know personally very well. I mean, to operate in a memory... I once operated on a very close friend with a malignant brain tumour, and because the family were particularly keen, I should. That was a very simple operation, which is why I agreed to do it. But that was almost impossible, because I was so, I was so anxious and so nervous. So you have to you have to be detached. You have to be not exactly cold, but get that balance right is very difficult. Henry's obviously doing it in a much grander, life-threatening way. But people always say to me, "How can you film this stuff? How can you participate without crying and, and breaking down and being too upset?" And I, I say the same thing that Henry, in a way, is saying. But if you go to a surgeon, or if you have a film made about you, or you ring the police on the ambulance. You do not want those people to break down crying when they turn up. That's not their job. Their job is to help you through something. And bizarrely, I have the 
forensic distance of the camera and the worries of have we got enough tapes and is the thing in focus and you know where are we doing going next so a little bit like you I've got a distance between myself and, and, and Marion or distance between myself and the patients which enables you to get the job done because that's actually what people have asked you to do and it would be terrible if surgeons broke down and you know, I know you have a very no. rock feeling about that. You as a surgeon say you cannot cry in front of no. the patients. But at the same time, you've got to be worried all the time. I despise complacent surgeons who are pleased with themselves. I mean, you've always got to be a bit anxious. It's all about attention to detail, worrying all the time. You're never totally in control. All sorts of little things can go wrong, particularly with brain surgery. Little things rapidly become an avalanche. So it's not that you're a sort of calm godlike figures or rational, detached appliance of science is a much more emotional thing. You're constantly struggling, or you should be, constantly struggling against trying to get this balance right between anxious involvement and calm detachment. Were you aware of where he was going? Did you... Uh, it didn't really bother me. I mean, they, it was the second film Jeffrey had made, and I, we're very good friends, and I just trust him. I knew he wasn't going to do me a disservice, whatever he did. And I think anybody... I suspect who's been filmed for a while, you stop noticing the cameras after a while. You know? And I mean, I, I suspect there's an element. I mean, I'm told I'm a TV natural. I mean, some people freeze up in front of cameras. I don't. Maybe I'm a narcissist and egotistical surgeon, but I'm perfectly happy to perform in front of a camera without... Yeah, you know, I'm aware of it. It's not completely spontaneous, but I, I'm not... You know, it doesn't, doesn't bother me very much. And one, on the whole, one forgets it pretty quickly. As I think the patients did in the film. I mean, they, yeah. they knew there was a film going on and there was a camera out in the corridor. And when they came into the room to talk to me and Igor, there were two cameras, one pointing at me, one pointing at them. And they'd look a little bit askance to begin with, but then, you know, they rapidly forgot. They were much more concerned about, you know, what we were talking about. Were you primarily the uh, the shooting team? Sometimes being in that kind of situation, really just having one or a sound person and, and usually the well, person Well, I was very, very, very careful about all that, extremely so, to the point where we set the room up to try and make it best for us so that we wouldn't be in their way. Despite, you know, the Ukrainian sense of privacy is quite a different one to ours and, and, and you know, people come and go in for those well, the all the time. Well, the chaotic, you know, it's, it's not chaotic. a one-to-one. There are about seven or eight people in the room, lots of other patients. Chocolates. Everybody's discussing. It's complete, complete. But I personally couldn't do that. I mean, so I, I sat... <laughs> it's like being on the train. Yeah, 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 yeah more or less, more or less. Is, yes, yes. I sat yes. in a little corner. And you're having all these life-and-death conversations. And then there's, the middle, you know, but that's the way it is over there. And you, you go into that. I felt very strongly that we had to... The cameras had to be just still and, and as much out of the way as possible. And so I was tucked in behind a bookcase and Gray and my other guy, my proper camera members, behind the patients. There's no lights. Sound recorders was in a little wardrobe around the corner. And to be honest, we were as intrusive as possible. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it really worked. It and it really did work. And people just forgot. I mean, you know, I was literally like behind there, for example, with a lens coming out. It looked beautiful. Yeah. I felt I was right in there yeah. watching this. Yeah. It was great. I mean, yeah. I'm not yeah. one to be that squeamish about things, but uh, it was very fascinating. Well, I, I think very one fascinating. thing, it's fascinating. I mean, the other thing, which I, I mean, it is fascinating, the fact that we are our brains. It's sort of one and a half kilograms of fatty protein. It's a very strange thought. But I think the, one thing I particularly like about that sequence is obviously many people in the audience... I get terribly feel rather disgusted or horrified or squeamish. 
But when you see the patient himself sort of laughing and smiling and sort of rolling his eyes as the camera pans over his face, you see the whole top of his head being sawed off. It sort of makes it rather sort of makes... That's exactly what I say to people. If he can be awake, you have to be. Come on, you know, he can cope with it. What are you doing getting all squeamish about it? I'm having my head sawed off and can joke about it. Exactly. He's got a pulse of 72 as well. No, everything was well done. And the music. You were nominated for an award yesterday for the Cinema Eye Award for the music and, and Best International Film. I was rooting for you guys. Oh, but, um, so were we. <laughs> but I wasn't on the jury. What do you want to, um, to happen? What do you want this film to do? You had a run, a very successful festival run this year from Hot Docs, Silver Docs, 65 film festivals. What do you want this film to to do now? Well, for me, it's one simple thing. I want, I want to raise money to help Igor because the financial crisis in Ukraine is 100 times worse than it is here, and it's bad enough anyway. But he's saved a lot of money. He's a totally... I mean, unlike many doctors, he's completely unmercenary. He's got no interest in self-aggrandizement or buying Ferraris or Porsches or any of that crap. Um, and he's saved about $300,000, which is a lot. And it's probably, he might lose a lot. The bank's default, which is actually very much on the cards in Ukraine, depending on whether the IMF can bail Ukraine out or not. So and I, I'm, I'm very sceptical about the role of charity. I mean, to give is to take, you know, and you weaken people by giving them too much help, to a certain extent, though Igor is not vulnerable in that way. But there's no point setting something up if it's not economically self-sustainable. And one of the big problems I faced with Igor was how he could actually set up a clinic which generated enough money so it was self-sustaining, which he succeeded. Now, it's a question to do with spinal surgery and private practice and things like that. It was a long, complicated question. Again, the whole idea of having a legal, not-for-profit private clinic in Ukraine was pretty extraordinary a few years ago. That's a bit more acceptable now. So, I mean, I, I, after the screenings in England, I've been sent a fair amount of money. But, I mean, with the financial crisis worldwide, there's less charitable money around. But I'd be very happy if, if screening the film brought in more money. On a more sort of broader philosophical perspective, I'd like to think it generally helps people understand the, the nature of medicine and the fact that difficult choices. And for me, the important message in the film is how difficult it is to say no. And yet one of the problems in modern medicine faces is you could spend the entire national income on health care and we'd all still die. You know, you have to draw the line somewhere. And the complete shambles of a healthcare system in the States partly reflects this difficulty to accept <laughs> that death is not optional, you know? And the more money you throw at something, every problem is solvable. But ultimately, our, our mortality is not solvable. And as it is, I mean, the inflation in healthcare costs, which is particularly bad in this country, but it actually is happening worldwide in all the Western countries, it is not sustainable. It really is not. You cannot go on spending more and more money in the way it's been happening. And to that extent, um, the inflation in healthcare and healthcare costs is all part of the same sort of philosophy that led to the financial crisis. This sort of borrowing yeah. and everything's going to be all right, just borrow money, there's a future. Well, the only certainty is, as dear old Benjamin Franklin said, the only certainty is in life are death and taxation. And now I might add global warming. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, you know, the film tackles that whole question of waste just through the, the little story with the perforators. And with your experience as a documentary filmmaker, how do you see it 
or do you see the changes, you know, with getting your films out there? Making the film, probably about a quarter of the effort, um, honestly. Most proper so-called Hollywood fiction films have about the same money spent on marketing as they do on the film itself. So we have no money. Documentaries, however good they are, they always struggle with a complete lack of marketing money. And that, I'm afraid, is the truth. It's a system that only works if you push um, and you push through funds. So to get people to see your film, despite it being extremely popular and, and the rest of it, is a battle. It's a huge battle. Film festivals are a beginning and they give you a platform. And outreach in this country is very important and there's going to be quite a lot of that happening. Then you've just got to rely on the power of the net and word of mouth to get it out. Um, but something that was... Henry and I both particularly important the other night was shown for the first time in Kiev to a crowd of 700 people. And they were so overcome with emotion. My production manager was there saying it was like mass catharsis was the word she used. And Igor was on stage, which for both Henry and I was really important because actually that's where the society needs to start changing, inside Ukraine by seeing and accepting some of these problems and then having people change their way of thinking about it. So for us, that, that one screening probably stands out as being the most important one, I think. Um, and there may well be more now. We may get it on television over there. I Good think it's really important that you are at film festivals. The audiences are drawn to it when the filmmaker's there. And I think that alone is one of the powerful voices that gets out into the grassroots marketing. But it's, again, it's one thing, and it's very hard on you. It's, it's worth doing. I mean, admittedly, I don't take holidays, so that makes it easier as well. <laughs> one thing that we did uh, talk about yesterday, we mentioned going to these film festivals, get to see other subjects really come across on the big screen. You probably wouldn't have had Yeah, no, I've, I've enjoyed that aspect of it. I've seen, so I hadn't realized just how dynamic and vibrant the documentary film world is and actually it's incredibly important to educate the world the world's in such a mess we need more documentaries and less fiction fiction ultimately is all about wish fulfillment pandering to our need for fairy stories and being tucked up in bed and told everything's going to be all right well the one thing that's absolutely clear about the next few decades on this planet is things are not all right either politically or economically or environmentally and that's why I think, you know, we got documentary films are so important to wake people up to the fact this is a very, very serious situation the human race faces. And documentaries are an important part of it. There's such a good film here that shows yeah. one aspect for it, and I find that very hopeful. Yeah, it's it can't be. Um, I'm certainly not that way. I don't want to end it or, or, or have people walk out depressed because... They've got enough of that, really. This film is incredibly redemptive. You People walk out on a high, knowing that the world's a better place because of people like Henry, but being able to share in that somehow, being able to say, oh, I can make a difference, I can do something tomorrow, today. I can choose well, to do the right thing. Well, the important thing is to try. I mean, that you know? struck me particularly in the, when I was in the, in the cemetery, and all the dead faces, they're people as they were when they were alive, and they're all looking at you, all looking straight ahead. So when you walk in, you have all these dead people looking at you. And initially, when I was walking through Tanya Cemetery, I was all saying to them, well, what did you do in your lives? They what? where were you? <laughs> and there was, they said back to me, well, what are you doing? We're dead, we can no longer do anything, but you're still alive, you've still got life. And I said to defend myself, well, I have tried, I have failed. <laughs> But it's trying which matters. Trying. Yeah. 
Okay, that's the story. Now go out there and find where it's playing and go see The English Surgeon. Better yet, check out the website, theenglishsurgeon.com. Check the dates. It screened this past week at the IFC Center very successfully. Oh my god, it was a packed house. And afterwards, this was the Stranger Than Fiction documentary series that goes on Tuesday evenings. And it's coming up. It will screen at the AFI Silver Theater this week, Thursday, April 2nd. That's tomorrow at Silver Spring, Maryland. If you know anybody in Silver Spring, go see it. IndiePix is the distributor for this film, and IndiePix is the largest online independent film, DVD, and download collection. Check it out, www.indiepix.com. And I'm putting the links up on the Film Festival Review site as well. So there's a Film Festival calendar for upcoming festivals. Go to filmfestivalreviews.com and subscribe to this podcast. Let me know what you think. And so until next time, thanks for listening.